0: The Construction Employers Podcast. Your connection to what's happening in the Northeast Ohio construction industry. Brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. Hello everyone, this is Tim Linville with the Construction Employers Association. Today in the booth with me I have City Council President Kevin Kelly of the City of Cleveland. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Tim. Happy to be here.
0: Happy to have you. And again, we have Glenn Shumate with us today. Glenn, how are you?
1: Doing well. Good to be with both of you today. Good to be with you.
0: Great. Well, well, Council President, thank you for coming in. Do I have to say that every time? Or?
1: Uh,
2: Kevin works. Kevin works. <laughs> thanks. That's going to ease my uh,
0: stutters. Right. Um, thanks for coming in. The, sure. Yesterday was Election Day. What are your thoughts?
2: First of all, I'm always shocked when I don't see a very robust voter turnout. Um, and I don't know why that is, continues to disappoint me. I mean, it's a great privilege and right that we have to vote. And when these off-year elections are every bit as important as the as the you know presidential years and the even-year elections, the people that sit in our municipal courts are extremely important. Um, the the issues that were on the ballot and in the communities outside of Cleveland, you're talking about you know the, the mayor of the city, the council people they're going to represent. So um, I guess if anything, I I wish more people would show up. I can't say that I was surprised by much because there was a lot of the races I wasn't sure which way to call mm-hmm. um I was very happy that the tri-seat levy passed um, Cleveland's charter amendments passed, and um, those are the ones that I was mostly watching
0: right yeah. no uh, city council people on the ballot this year
2: not this year but but get ready 2021's coming <laughs>
0: sooner than we want
2: yes <laughs> so you spoke oh, we about have a big one next year
1: too you spoke but. about charter amendments um yes How's that process for? How's that process happen in best interest of citizens in the city?
2: So we have a charter review commission that meets every ten years, and they put forth numerous recommendations, um, and we the council then has to vote to put them on the ballot, and the of the three, there was only one that was uh, of much consequence. Two were more um, cleanup clean up type sure. language for. For charter change that already happened, but making sure that the language catches up with the law. Uh, There's one that required that if you run for office in the city of Cleveland, that you should be a resident of the city of Cleveland for one year, and and that passed. Um, so that was that was the only one that was had like any substance that was okay. that, that would kind of change how we do business.
0: So uh, backtracking a little bit, how long have you been mm-hmm. council president?
2: I have been council president since January of 2014. Um, I was a, I was representing Ward 13 for two terms before that as a local council person. Uh, we're elected by our, uh, by the constituents to council and then elected by our colleagues to council president. So I was first elected in January of 2014 and reelected council president in 2018. Okay.
0: And what led you into politics?
2: Good question. And there's no really good answer to it. Because it's not a rational business to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know you get you get paid less more headaches and you know you're underappreciated but it's a it's kind of a calling that you that one has or doesn't have. Um, we all know really good smart people that you think would be good office holders, but they just want no part of it and they're yeah. probably smart that way you can't make somebody want it right So I always tell people there's two qualifications for a political job. Um, you have to be 18 years old and you have to want it and everything else, you know, can fall in place. But you have to have those two things. Yeah. Prior to being a prior to my election to council, I was a I was a social worker for fifteen years and then I went back to law school at night. Um and I had just passed the bar before I joined council. And I look at it as when I whether you're a social worker or a lawyer or a public official, you're advocating for people. You're advocating for you know, people who need help navigating through systems. Um, I did that as a social worker, I did that as a lawyer, and now I do it as a public official.
0: What kinds of issues did you get involved with as a social worker?
2: So when I, the last job I had, I worked at Recovery Resources. I uh, managed their, the what we call the forensic programs. Basically, um, I was the manager of the, uh-huh. Disorder Defender Program um, and for both the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas and Cleveland Municipal Courts. And what I would do is me or my team, we would go and we would work with um, the judges or probation um, to recommend a course of where somebody would receive treatment in the community as opposed to prison. And it would be a part of their probation. And we would work with Department of Probation to make sure that the person is seeing the doctor taking their medication. Um, sometimes there's a requirement that they... Um, attend AA meetings or something like that, and just, just try to help somebody stand track so that they could avoid, uh, so that the mental our mental ill defendants could avoid going to prison when they can succeed in the community. Right. So that's what I spent most of my social work years doing. Before I got there, I did everything from, you know, we served meals at Westside Catholic Center, um, tried to get work to get people Medicaid, you know, housing, food, shelter, you know, just all the basics. But that's where I did most of my time was at Recovery Resources dealing with mentally ill defendants.
1: Sure. So can we go back a little further? <clears throat> sure. Where'd you go to school, high school?
2: Uh, St. Edward High School. Uh,
1: Cleveland resident, grew up here.
2: Yeah, so the um, Kelly family's ancestral homeland is is West Park. Um, my grandfather built a house there and had six children, my father being one of them, four of six Bought homes, built homes in West Park and raised their families there. My father got transferred around um, and I, you know, bopped around a little bit. And then I, when uh, my, my father passed away, came back to Cleveland and I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. And right now I live in Old Brooklyn.
0: Yeah. And is that Ward 13?
2: Yes. Yeah, Ward 13 is mainly Old Brooklyn, small piece of the Stockyards neighborhood.
0: Got it, got yeah. it. Well, there's a lot of listeners that aren't even from Ohio. So, mm-hmm. would you, as council president, just give your snapshot? How would you describe Cleveland?
2: Cleveland is a great city, um, and we have all of the resource and opportunity to really be an even greater city. Um, I look at what's going on in Cleveland right now, and we are certainly in the midst of of a recovery renaissance. Pick your pick your term, but at the same time. You know, the, the flip side of that coin is that we, while we have great, our GDP is tremendous, our income tax receivables are great, even our property tax receivables are finally recovering. We're in our eighth year of a billion dollars plus of permit applications. We still have uh, poverty. We still have crime. We still have a situation where despite the um, prosperity I just described, um, our average per capita household income is flat to falling. Mm. Um and not everybody is enjoying the recovery that that is Cleveland. Right. But you know, if you look at from a from a just kind of a broad perspective, you, the what's happening, the the amount of construction, what's happening in the lakefront, what's happening with just some of our other partners, the Metro Parks, the port, there's a lot of just great things happening in the city. The challenge to myself and other elected officials is how do we take this prosperity and make sure that everybody prospers from it?
0: Right, right, right. right. Um, I was looking at a report that actually Team Neo put out recently called Aligning Opportunities In, and, and it cites um, one of its statistics is living wage. Mm-hmm. And it cites a study by the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and at, MIT has county by county living wage stats, which I thought was interesting. And for Cuyahoga County, for an adult, uh, two adults, one of them working with two children the living wage is supposedly $49,083 and it's got it calculated in the food expense, childcare, medical, housing, transportation, other. One thing I I noted not on here is retirement savings. Um, so this is just subsistence, I guess, you
2: know? Yeah. And that's, that's unfortunately the reality. A lot of families live in. Mm -hmm. Um, you can't think about retirement until you have your basic needs met. You can't think about retirement until you can pay your bills as they come due that month. And you know, for a lot of people, unfortunately, retirement is a luxury that they that they can't afford to think about right now. Mm. Um, it's really just a matter of you know um, what was that number you cited forty nine thousand for a family of four, right? Okay, and that's challenging. You know, you, yeah. there's not going to be a whole lot of extra. You know, if you're if you're raising kids, um, and putting food on the table and doing paying the expenses that that kids bring, there's not going to be a lot that you can put away for retirement.
0: Right. Yeah. So what would wh- Just on that topic, what would you think family of four would need to really survive and plan for the future?
2: So I would think that if you want to look for where is it that a family of four should be? Somewhere around the $75,000 range. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you can, you know, live at a comfortable rate. I mean, what we don't talk enough about or really understand is that, you know, we look at numbers and we think about families, but, and I can even think of my own family and we're middle-class, but when you have a, a, a financial crisis, that's very stressful to the mm-hmm. whole family, mm-hmm. um, and it's very difficult. And don't think you know we can't think that kids don't feel it. Um, people need to have enough to a you know put food on their table, raise their kids, but you also have to have enough for an emergency. You've got to have enough for a four hundred dollar car issue that came up. You have to have enough so that if your roof leaks, you can repair your roof without having to you know somehow um skimp on what you're doing for your kids. Mm-hmm. So you know it is it's it's hard to raise a family. It's hard to um afford what you know wh- what needs to happen and on on the wages that you're talking about, you know living wage is probably just that. It's probably just a living wage. Right.
0: Right, right. It's not a planning yeah. wage.
2: No, and it's <laughs> not a uh it's not a wage that people can comfortably think about a retirement or, you know, you know, what happens as a, is that something that's going to increase over the years? You know, that's just getting by
1: mm-hmm. well, locally and nationally. There's been interest in advancing legislation for living wages and at a federal and state and maybe local level. Um, Any sense from your position as city council president about how that might uh, impact or affect or the best way to achieve that for city Cleveland residents?
2: Willie, really, as a just a baseline is that the federal and state minimum wage are not even that i mean right. they're not even a minimum wage if if the minimum wage had kept pace when it was set in 1968 um i forget the number i think we would be at 13 and some cents you know per hour and we it, we just have not kept pace so to get to a living wage i think we first have to look at you know what what is the wage what should the minimum wage be before we get to a living wage and the challenge we face we really need our federal and state officials to to institute that to to really take the, sure. take take leadership on that because it's um that's where the the solution lies
0: there's still 785 for the federal minimum wage
2: yes and um ohio it's almost like they almost shouldn't raise it because they have it built into um, this this formula where it's almost insulting when they do when they do raise it mm-hmm. it ends up being like a nickel or 10 cents or something that just keep your nickel right at a certain point yeah the yeah. city of Cleveland I will say um, has raised its minimum wage for its employees to15 dollars an hour um, for, all, for all city of Cleveland em- employees um, and I know that a number of institutions the Cleveland Clinic and others have have followed suit in that
0: right. So with economic development, which the city participates in mm-hmm. on its own, uh, the county participates in as well as on its own, and then together, through the port authority, which the city and the county county both appoint trustees to, the port authority also participates majorly in economic development. What are your um, policies behind econo- economic development? What are you trying to achieve?
2: So what we mainly do, well, I shouldn't say there's no like real one thing we do. There's a lot of different tools that we have. For for economic development, the port is critical in terms of being able to finance projects at a lower rate that makes it makes numbers work for the the, the people that are doing the project. What we look for in the city of Cleveland, whether it's a TIF or a tax increment financing, whether it is you know vacant properties initiative, whatever the, the dollar amount is, it's kind of a two part analysis that we do. First thing is we look at the numbers and. Um, while everybody comes up with numbers a different way, we're we're, we're, we have people that are pretty skilled at knowing what's reality and what's not. Mm -hmm. So the first question is, is a but for test, you know, but for the city's assistance, does this project happen anyhow? Right. Um, Or is this just a sweetener that's going to go in the pockets Mm of, you know, whether it's the, you know, the developer or somebody else. So that's the first analysis is, you know, but for the city's help, will this project go forward? Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then we look at what are the short, medium, and long-term economic impacts of the city of Cleveland. And we weigh that mostly on Cleveland's an income tax city because we're in an income tax state. We look at that mostly as number of jobs that it's going to create, both in construction and then ongoing jobs. And what what's what will that mean to the city's um, general fund over time if this project happens? So right. if it's a very unutilized piece of land that that currently has no – No economic activity on it. Well, then you know there's numerous ways that the construction dollars and whatever type of business it's going to go from you know from very little to you know a a thriving we hope a thriving or at least a productive piece of property. Right. You know that's we can kind of make good guesstimates over what that's going to mean to the general fund. It gets more confusing when it's uh, it's an already an existing use that's generating some funds. Then we look at the difference. So. Maybe it's a parking structure, and we know exactly what that's generating for the city. If somebody proposed a development and, you know, to, to replace that or go on top of it, we want to make sure that, A, we're no less worse off because of development, mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that we're better in the short, medium, and long term based on the number of jobs they're going to create. It, right. Will be created.
0: Right. And with respect to... Economic development that the city supports. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of are there stipulations as to the types of construction work that gets done? Prevailing wage, not prevailing wage, local hiring. I know there's a we've talked about recently a Supreme Court case that the city's involved with on that.
2: Absolutely, and that's a um, we support projects that are going to benefit residents of the city of Cleveland, um, not just in terms of like the jobs in general fund that might come to the city. We mean, you know, actual construction jobs—actually getting people working on these projects—and we have, we had a law, um, the the Fannie Lewis Law, that set forth our local hiring preferences, and and they were preferences, and that that law was an absolute unmitigated success in terms of getting people opportunities, in terms of the number of employees that benefited from it, the number of companies and the number of smaller companies that were able to become to, to grow their business because of it. There are dozens of companies that may, because of the Fannie Lewis law, they may have started as a very small subcontractor. They would grow to a point where they could actually bid on the project as a general contractor. Mm -hmm. There's, it was an absolute um, success. And what's very unfortunate is that um, when I looked at the recent case that has overturned the Fannie Lewis law. I kind of, I'm, you know, I probably shouldn't have, but I kind of s- stopped following it because mm-hmm. I watched it at the trial court level, and the trial court came to the right decision, and I watched the appellate decision, and the appellate court basically said, you know, this is essentially the city's right to contract with whom it wants without right. the state's help. You know, thanks, Columbus, mm-hmm. but we got this one. Mm-hmm. So. The the those that were the the appellees, the, the people that were, that were appealing it, they were arguing that this is akin to residency that the contractors or subcontractors their subcontractors were were essentially employees of the city. So after the court of appeals decision, I was like that argument is 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 so asinine mm-hmm. that not even our Supreme Court could botch this one. <laughs> um but um, when it comes to issues of local home rule unfortunately the our our Supreme Court never fails to disappoint, and you know you know some doesn't fail to set aside the law to get to the result that you know that that they want mm-hmm. the most striking line in in the majority opinion was it's clear that this law was not to benefit workers well, that's what they based wow yeah it's it's shocking if you read the opinion how they came out the way they did. Even for this court, I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and very little surprises me uh, out, of, out of this court. But this—that was, that was a, I've never seen the law botched so bad to get to a certain political result.
1: Mm. Well, the law was in place for 15 years, maybe, I think, yes. or so. And not only did the city of Cleveland have success with it, but a number of our institutions around town adopted the policy as a, good measure as a good business practice. Yes. And hopefully that will continue. I mean, that's been our CA's position Mm -hmm. um, that both our contractors and relationships we have with owners, that they would see that it's a good business practice.
2: I certainly hope so. And what's really unique about Cleveland and construction in Cleveland is that there isn't a, there isn't like this grind between the contractors and the unions. It's basically, everybody understands the rules. Everyone understands that you know this is this is how we do business in Cleveland. If you're going to do a Cleveland project with public dollars, these are the expectations. Right. And you know I understand maybe uh, the Ohio Contractor Association was one of the main um, plaintiffs. I understand it might have caused some inconvenience and some paperwork issues. But the way I look at this, when we would have a pre-bid meeting, they were always packed. Um, mm-hmm. When we would, you know, issue a contract, you know, it's not like people didn't want to do business. People would line right up to do contracts. They would submit. We got their change orders. We, it was business as usual. So this didn't have any chilling effect
0: and
3: there on
2: construction.
0: Th- yeah. I sat on the, uh, Glenn and I have both sat on the uh, review committee for the Fannie Lewis law mm-hmm. representing the industry, the contractors. And for the last 10 years, really, there really weren't very many failures to meet very those few. obligations. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. And, And it's not as if the city was not reasonable when that did happen. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a a best faith effort clause in there. And like I say, most people didn't miss, but it was really just an opportunity or or a kind of a a checkpoint. Well, hey, listen, there is, and these are very valuable contracts, and we just want you to make sure that residents of the city of Cleveland, you know, women-owned firm, minority-owned firms – get a piece of this, Get are, are able to better themselves. We're not asking for anything more than an opportunity. Right. And that's all it provided, which is why it's just so disappointing that, um, A, I mean, take the Supreme Court out of it for just a minute. We can always come back to them. <laughs> but that our General Assembly would take this step that, I mean, the big government types in Columbus don't mm-hmm. like when things work locally. So here we had a situation where we had, um, you know, essentially, if we can call the Greater the Greater Cleveland Partnership the business community, we had the business community, we had the labor community, we had CEA, we had the City of Cleveland, we had all of our public employers, we had the Port. Everybody understood this, mm-hmm. and everybody works together. Everybody understands how this happens. And like I just said, of you know, a few minutes ago, we're in our eighth year of billion-dollar-plus applications for construction. So it seems to be working okay, but. You know, you get the big government types in Columbus that want, you know, Columbus to, you know, control. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact that the General Assembly passed in the first place uh, is really ridiculous. The fact that former Governor Kasich signed this should be embarrassing for anybody who wants to profess for two seconds that they are not for big government or they think that local control is a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my perspective is just kind of hearing things around the industry throughout the state was it wasn't really about Cleveland. That Mm -hmm. state law was not about Cleveland. It was about the the city of Akron's residency Mm -hmm. requirement, which was 50%, which went from zero to 50 real fast. Um, That was a react like a knee jerk in response to that, as well as some Cincinnati issues. I think there was a knee jerk in response to that.
2: My take on it is that they were looking for an opportunity um, mm-hmm. Like I say, Cleveland was working very well. Mm-hmm. So Akron did this 50% thing. And, you know, you both sat on the committee. You mm-hmm. know that that would have imploded on its own weight. Right? It, you, you can't get to 50%. It says there's not enough qualified workforce in the city limits. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to let that just play itself out, I think that there was not, an opportunity was seized upon um, to, you know, really – use this to disable Cleveland's law and every other, every other municipality right. um, that, that it had anything similar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree
2: so, with that. So I, I don't, I, I think there's very little good faith in this one.
1: Hmm. A function of government is providing opportunities for its citizens and its residents. And in this case, the law was really around the economic aspects of it, not legislating who got hired but ensuring that there was financial opportunity for residents to participate. Uh, and hopefully, again, that will continue uh, with private sector and with CA members and become a way in which basically Cleveland does business, right? The Cleveland culture, if you will, become institutionalized.
2: Yeah. We're not done with this one. We don't know exactly where it's going to land, but one way or another, regardless of what the state says, we're going to find a way to make sure that city of Cleveland residents are represented on these contracts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the building trades are, are, are supportive, you know, black Contractors association, everybody who has been, you know, been involved in executing the Fannie Lewis law is supportive. Mm -hmm. So so I don't know what the exact answer is, but there's going to be, we're not done with this one. We're going to find a way to make sure that happens. Right.
1: Good. good, Good. You referenced earlier, the, um, small minority female business opportunities um, and the city of Cleveland has a also equal opportunity that I think a lot of that compliance or oversight runs through um, certifications and being certified. And again, it's a pretty robust office that provides regular reporting and they kind of staffed, if you will, the Fannie Lewis committee um, to the extent that you're aware, could you just you know, speak to that work that OEO provides in the cities involved with?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and so basically, because this law has been in effect for you know uh, fifteen years, it was a it was a well-run shop in terms of, like I stated earlier. Yes, it may represent some inconvenience to contractors because they have to report a certain way, but their job was to make that easier, to because they needed to get the reports out. They needed to they needed to help the um, contractors you know uh, enter accurate data, and it it had become. A very routine not not routine, but a very well run operation where any any inconvenience any problems or any you know any any difficulties that were imposed by the fannie Lewis law, their job was to make that easier for for the contractor and they did, and they did a very good job of that, and they took that and they pro, you know they produced reports that were provided to the city council that we relied on for you know projects go ongoing, so it became a whole it's it's what we relied on. Anytime that same contractor or a similar project would come, we'd want to know, know, just tell us about your numbers. What does it look like? And they were able to assist them in in telling their story about how not only did they build a great project, but they hired X amount of Cleveland residents of Cleveland small businesses. Mm
1: -hmm. And so on the enterprise side, Mm non-workforce, there are also opportunities for involvement for small businesses to participate in city contracts and construction work and, um, we see that that is a uh, another area of opportunity. And as you talk about the growth of Cleveland projects, are there um, tools, incentives, and opportunities for some of those development projects to also support the enterprise side?
2: Certainly. And we have, in addition to you know, the Fannie Lewis Law and everything that's involved with actual construction, you know, we have seminars that we put on. And by no, two times a year, to to show people this is what you need to do to do business with the city of Cleveland. Um, the the airport uh, is they do a over they I forget the exact number that they have, but the 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 airport is very active in putting on seminars and putting on trainings. And how do you get to do how this is how you do business with the city of Cleveland? These are the steps you need to take. This is the paperwork you need to get in. But there is a very active push from the city to beyond construction, to really reach out to small vendors and say, this is how you do it. This is how you get, um, you know, in this queue. This is how you get considered for projects. And this is how you bid on projects. And this is how you bid on not just projects but on contracts.
1: Sure. And public utilities, obviously, right? Yeah, public
2: utilities, you know, between water, including public power and water pollution control, um, there's a tremendous amount of jobs. There's a lot of vendors. There's a lot of consultants. There's a lot they... They use a whole lot of vendors for that and knowing how to navigate that system, knowing how to access, knowing when an RFP, excuse me, request for proposal comes out, knowing where that is and how to respond to it and what are the city's forms. That stuff we spend a lot of time making sure that, that the, that the business community knows about and they know how to navigate.
1: CA is involved with Tim, nearly 500 contractors, uh, greater Cleveland. And generally I think our, feedback and perception is that the city of Cleveland's work is very positive and very proactive in terms of your help and assistance. And from serving on Fannie Lewis to interacting with uh, development directors and others in terms of some of the projects um, that both the, you know, the executive or the administration, as well as council uh, really are engaged and have a, a deep concern for it. And have you seen, You know, obviously, there's been growth in Cleveland, right, from projects, and we could look at the Q, which just, well, the Rocket Mortgage Field House, formerly the Q, which uh, just had its uh, opening a few weeks ago. And are there other projects that uh, are up and coming?
0: But before you answer that, Uh, let me provide a caveat to the the rosy picture. Um, Permitting has always been a a thorn in our side, Um, and we've you've been very helpful for, for us with that, and I appreciate you intervening and, and examining what the practices are and how to improve them on behalf of the city. Um, but uh, the processes for permitting have been a little clunky in the mm-hmm. years past, and uh, and even still with respect to bid submittals, it's a little clunky. It's a little bit too physical and too uh, old school. Um, it can be improved. Um, Agreed. And a little too expensive, too, um, Agreed. in terms of permitting, um I've heard some crazy numbers on how much it costs to get a permit. Uh, the sure. value for that for that cost has been a, a question mark in, in many contractors' minds. But, um, but again, appreciate your, sure. no, your the, listening here and attempts to, to, to correct things.
2: Yeah, permitting is, is crucial because, first of all, the city has an interest in making sure that projects are done properly and they're done safely. We don't want anybody getting hurt on the job. We don't want, like I say, correctly and safely. Those are, that's what we want to have. We want, we want excellent projects and a project's got to work for the city and it's got to work for the contractor. Right. Um, if it doesn't work for either side, there's a problem. Um, you know, when I was first council president, we ran into the issue cause we were, there was a couple major bridge projects in place and it was an issue of the, of the super loads. And right. there'd be a situation where um, there'd be a piece of equipment to break down and the contractor uh, needed to get a new piece there. So they would have to apply to ODOT, and then to apply to the city of Cleveland. So ODOT was responding within an hour, and the city of Cleveland was responding God knows when. And, you know, the problem with that is got to send people home. So right. it's costing the contractor money. It's costing the workers money because they're not on the clock. It's costing—it's delaying the project. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in the cities, just, just a caveat, where ODOT has just the specified state roads right. to consider— we have ro- more roads that have less capacity to carry the load so there is there is more work but we've gotten it down to 3 days um, which is a big yeah, improvement it's a big improvement and um, we're not done but it's a it's a step forward and i think that the that's the maximum most of them are are replied same day but that's something that i've been working with your members on and making sure that we get that done as far as the the rest of the permitting Um, procedure. We're taking steps. There's an online application that that's available and we're trying to um, streamline that Mm -hmm. because I understand that, you know, if you have to, if somebody has got to send a person to run around the fifth floor for half a day or a day, that's going to cost some money. Right. And if you're not getting your permit in a timely manner, that's costing money. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the price of materials doesn't stay the same. The price of, you know, your, your interest rates doesn't stay the same. And I think we need to look at how we you know, how we value anybody applying for a permit, whether it's a guy, a person, man or woman who's building a deck on their house, or it's a $300 million project, they're all investing in the city of Cleveland. Right. They're all spending their money to make their community better. So we need to treat them as such. And we need to make sure that we are actively reaching out and finding out, you know, what are the problems? I mean, my my goal is that if I ever hear somebody say, it's hard to do business with the city of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. My goal is that my mind is like, well, there must be something wrong with them, like with their application. They must be wanting something nonconforming. I never want to have the sense, like I sometimes do now, that it's on the city side. And I know that we have improvement to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting, getting the fifth floor to be a more of a welcoming experience, more of a positive experience for anybody who is spending, you know, $1 in this city mm-hmm. to improve their home or the community,
1: you know, that needs to be a priority.
0: Yeah, well, we certainly certainly appreciate all you've done so far, and looking forward to continuing to and improve. It,
1: it might be interesting to host a, uh, you know, contractor, fifth floor, you know, meeting or opportunity session to yeah. kind of fix or improve the process. Not that it's broken, but at least to improve it's the process. Kind of broken, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely. No, there's definitely improvement that can be made because, like I say, it is important to me that if if you have a, a project if you want to spend your money I'm not going to say no if you want to spend your money to improve our city absolutely you know we need to shouldn't be red tape there should be a red carpet
1: and so not just CA members but certainly our members and other contractors work in other communities and cities and states and probably see different practices and processes and could bring forth here's what works in other places and we could maybe provide some context for so we'd love to Sure. Be involved in it.
2: No, I'd be happy to help in any way. And we're a we're a bigger city and, you know, bigger legacy cities. We have certain challenges, but there's, we just have to start with the mindset that anybody who walks in is our customer. Anybody who walks in to the fifth floor is somebody that is adding value to the city of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And I think if we if we just start there, we can fix a whole lot of stuff. Sure.
0: So back to Glenn's initial question about what do you see coming up in the city? And we know we have the Lumen tower going up. That's going mm-hmm. to be completed within the next year or so. And what else is going on? So
2: Lumen is, is in a, in a good place is moving along. Um, I would like to see the, the bridge project completed, um, the pedestrian bridge, um, over the shoreway, over the shoreway. Um, that's been, we've been talking about that for too long. We need to get that done. Mm-hmm. Smaller bridge project from Voinovich park to uh, kind of by the Mather. I want to see that get done. Um, the question marks are on the board, um, that I'm, think something will probably happen. Uh, you know, I'm confident that there'll be a Sheron williams project coming up. Um, I'm, I'm fairly confident that something will happen with this nucleus project. Um, you know, once everybody understands that you got to pay people a failing wage and sure. you, gotta, right. you gotta, you gotta pay people right. to work. Um, and Metro Hospital is continuing, you know, it's, it's progress and that's, that's a Great pro- Every project should be like that in terms of they're, they're building a hospital. The building is great. The process they're going through is great. It's all prevailing wage. But they're also using this opportunity to be more involved in the community. They're really supporting the activities that are happening on West 25th Street, the development mm-hmm. that uh, Councilwoman Santana is working on. So they are really taking steps forward. Um, so those are kind of the big ones that are either in progress or I hope will be soon. Yeah.
1: We've heard a lot of talk about the justice center.
2: Yeah, I don't think that's going to. Um, something will happen, but I said in progress or in progress soon. Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's <laughs> going to. That's a. Uh, that's more of a longer term. Longer term uh, issue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: It sure needs help.
2: Yeah, it needs a little. It needs a little push. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: So, in the national headlines recently, just this week. Uh, when the political uh, campaigning was at its height, I've started to notice Democrats nationally being critical of opportunity zones. Have you seen that? Yes. What's Uh, that about?
2: Well, I think opportunity zones are um, a little understood opportunity for a few people that know exactly what they are and how to utilize it. And it came with such a short timeline that only people that really had a lot of knowledge were able to do so. At the local level, we were critical and still are because nobody consulted, no, none of our suggestions, if we were consulted, which I don't think we were, none of the suggestions were taken. It's If you look at where the opportunity zones are in Cleveland mm-hmm. and where they're not, there's not really like a logical kind of nexus in terms of whether it's tied to poverty or property values or investment opportunity. There's not nothing that's like really... There's no, like, doesn't seem like there's much science behind it. Hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, they're rightly criticized for that purpose. Now, if we're fortunate enough that we can get some investment out of it, then, you know, let's go, but so long as they're paying people properly. Right.
1: Relatedly, Opportunity Corridor Mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's Thriving Neighborhoods. Is that the city's initiative around? 105 to 93rd and beyond?
2: Yeah, it's called the 105th Street Project. Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. W- what is that? What's- so
2: that's part of the, um, well, Opportunity Corridor, as we, as we know about, is, you know, uh, the roadway that is going to bring 490 to University Circle. Um, the, but the real hope is a roadway is just a roadway. We're really encouraging development along that roadway and using that as uh, an opportunity to spark other business, spark more economic opportunity in that area the um the glenville project on 105th street is part of the mayor's transformation plan and it's basically an acknowledgment that the private sector is not investing in certain neighborhoods there's some neighborhoods where they are investing and it's not really based on anything um, the traffic counts and income levels and spending purchasing power in the neighborhoods is there There's just, for some reason, there hasn't been the investment. So basically, this was an opportunity. We passed, um, it's been a couple years ago, $25 million in in bond money as investment dollars. This is different from what the city normally does. mayor used that $25 million to go to the banks to leverage more. It became $67 million. And that is the project that you see on 105th Street right now. That project will be successful if it leads to, it, sh- it sets an example. It shows other investors that, yes, you can invest in Cleveland neighborhoods and you can make a profit. And, you know, whatever preconceived notions you may have, whatever historic redlining may have happened around these neighborhoods, um, we have the traffic counts, we have the purchasing power, we have the income to support whatever, you know, the business that you want to set up here.
1: The other area that has been in the news in the last few weeks has been Cleveland schools and consideration for consolidation, closing, however you want to label that. Uh, and certain of your colleagues have been very vocal about going forward. What happens? Any insights or perspective there?
2: Well, it's every no council person can just let that happen without you know without a fight. You can't a dark. Um, a school that goes dark in your neighborhood is terrible. Um, it's terrible for, it sends a bad message about your community. Often a fence will go up around it. Um, it's not, it's, it's not good for the community. Um, at the same time, the Cleveland Municipal School District is faced with a problem that is bigger than it, which is the, the fact that people are having less children. There's less children in the, in the district. Um, Many of them are choosing charter schools, um, parochial schools. Um, and there's for whatever reason that there are not children in the schools or not enough children in the schools to support the, the build out that we, that we currently have. Um, so I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I can't disagree with the notion that we have more capacity than we have students. Right. So what that, what that looks like, I'm not sure. Um, I will say that the, district seems to be really working to, to reach out to people to, you know, to, you know, evaluate possible suggestions, but no, it's devastating to lose a, a school in your community. There's, there's no easy way around it. It's just a devastating um, thing to have happen, mm-hmm. especially in historic. I mean, you talk about whether it's Collinwood or one you know, th- these are historic buildings. These are, you know, of, you know, formerly thriving, bustling schools. Um, and to see them shuttered and see a fence go up around them is n- not a look that any council person would want. Right.
0: So with the uh, the national climate mm-hmm. as played out locally, how do you see it playing out locally?
2: So I see the what's going on nationally um, has created a lot of voter or just populist kind of like anger or division. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has seeped down to every level because when you see what's going on in Washington, a lot of people can't help but be angry and they're angry at what they see. And, you know, whether it's me or the mayor, you know, people are just upset with the status quo Mm -hmm. and how that manifests itself. It kind of changes person by person, community by community, but I just see what's happening in Washington at the national level is toxic. And that toxicity is seeping down mm-hmm. to our state and to our local politics as well.
0: Yeah, I totally agree as far as I'm not in politics, but just in relationships mm-hmm. and seeping into relationships, right. whether it's, you know, competitors or, or friends or family, even at the Thanksgiving table. I know yeah, people will start to get stressed out around Thanksgiving because they know they're going to have to see their right. crazy uncle
2: or, their, <laughs> or their, you know, whoever it is. Everybody's and, got uh, Uncle yeah. Tim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that guy for some people. Right. <laughs> so but yeah, I totally agree. Yeah.
1: One other related topic we talked about earlier in terms of development and growth is in some of the tools the city has. And there's a tax abatement study, yes. I believe, that City of Cleveland Council mm-hmm. is uh, looking at or going forth with. I mean, so tax abatements have been around and used as a tool for the city for 20 years or longer?
2: Yes, yes. And tax abatement has been... A tremendously successful experiment um, and the standard um, tax abatement is fifteen years and it has been tremendous um, fifteen years seems like a long time, but it does go by. Some of the first projects were um, constructed in Ohio City, and they are off the rolls now and they are paying they're they're paying the full rate of tax and it's it's been very. It's been very good for the city. It's been very good for all those that rely on property taxes. That being said, this tool has outlived its um, useful life as a as a one one size fits all um, tool. Mm-hmm. Um, there are communities where you probably don't need fifteen years tax abatement to to build. Kind of like we talked earlier about this, but for sure, um, question that we need. So, for certain neighborhoods but for this tax abatement, would somebody build this row of townhouses that you can sell for, you know, $600,000? Yeah, probably. Um, so they don't necessarily need it. But at the same time, we're not just looking at where do we where do we dial it down, but we also have to look at, you know, maybe there are certain Cleveland neighborhoods that, you know, we talked about the spurring investment from the private okay. sector. Maybe we need to ramp it to 20 years in, in certain neighborhoods and like up to like really incentivize building in certain neighborhoods if for nothing else to show that yes there are people here with purchasing power you can create a new safe neighborhood here and people will buy and this will become a thriving neighborhood Um, because we know it works as an incentive it's right now it's a matter of tailoring it to the the types of development we want to see in every
1: community. Is there an expiration date for the city's abatement
2: program? Yes there is and I forget what the date is but um we are doing a study right now and I forget the number, but we're we're well in it's at least uh two years out. And anything that we do, if there's a project that started, it will be grandfathered. Anytime you talk about the scene, the anxiety in the community rises about projects that they have. It's like if you've got a project in the books, relax. Mm-hmm. This is something we're looking at for kind of years down the road. And so nobody's gonna be caught by surprise when we do something. Mm-hmm
0: seems like almost and correct me if i'm wrong but the tax abatements the opportunity zones the port authorities ability to to give tax advantages it's it's a very competitive marketplace it uh, seems like on on the part of public authorities to try to lure economic development into their territories
2: it is and it's unfortunate that it is because we shouldn't be um having public entities fight amongst each other Mm -hmm. to, to bring, you know, whatever that project or that, that, that business is. But it is something that happens. And I think we just have to, we have to look at it where there's, there's a point where it's not worth the public investment. There's a point where, you know, we've got our limits too, Mm -hmm. and we have other competing needs. um, You know, but at the same time, you know, if, if the port authority with its economic development capacity um, can like really work to keep the you know, financing charges down if the city of Cleveland through its TIF or its vacant properties initiative or you know the various incentives that we have if it makes sense for the city then we should do it um, should we you know put ourselves at a you know should we put the school portion of the TIF on the table should we um, go tax abate from 15 years to 20 or 25 no Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there, there's a point where it makes sense for the city, and there's a point where it's just asking too much, and that's, you know, that's the balance we have to strike. Right, right, right.
0: So as we wrap up here, any parting thoughts for our members, our contractors, the importance of engaging in, in civic dialogue? What, how would you like people to engage with you?
2: Well, what I would like is I want everybody to understand that you know there's an open door at 601 Lakeside. Um, we value the work that your members do. We, we value the projects. We appreciate the willingness to accept and adopt the Fannie Lewis law and, and you know, the things that we believe are going to, you know, lift more, more boats than just themselves. And um, we really want to work with them in terms of how do we kind of uh, develop the next level of talent, the next generation of talent, how do we get more young people involved in the trades? How do we get more people involved in construction? How do we make sure that we're planning not just for 2019 or 2020, but what are we doing? What Are we, are we looking at 2030? Are we looking at 2040 in terms of who is the next generation in this industry?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything to add, Glenn?
1: No, I mean, I'd say uh, certainly thank you for your service and your leadership. Thank you. Um, not just with CEA, but on behalf of the city, and greater than that, I guess, you you have some role once you play um, in terms of our democracy. And do my best. (laughs) So thank you for that as well. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Councilman. Appreciate you being on.
1: All right. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening. To find more information
0: about the discussion in this or prior episodes, be sure to check the episode notes section in your podcast app. Get notified and automatically download the latest episode by subscribing to the Construction Employers Podcast in the iTunes Store or in Google Play. This podcast is brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. Find us on the web at www.ceacisp.org.